could open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. I'm sure you're all aware that just speaking in general, through the years, a lot of things have changed just all around us. And one of the things I was thinking when the kids were singing earlier, just compared to how, I guess, maybe a lot of Baptist churches were before, we were almost having fun. <laughs> and I was kind of like, is that allowed? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, I heard a rumor that Robert is working on hand signals for us when we sing certain hymns. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> let's, uh, let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, as always, we are grateful for the great privilege we have to gather together as believers and to worship you. Fathers, we begin now in looking at the book of Matthew, which brings our focus and attention on the person of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, our minds, helping us, Father, to gain greater understanding of your plan, what your son has done, what he's accomplished for us, who he is. Father, we may better comprehend who he is and, and worship you in, in truth and with understanding, and that, Father, our lives will continue to be not only changed, but will be encouraged along the way. And so we thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to read first verse 1 of Matthew 1, then I'm going to drop to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew 28 and 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make all disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we begin the book of Matthew today. So I want to go through some, I guess some, you would say some introductory uh, remarks so that uh, we can just kind of have a better understanding and background of what's going on here in, in the book of Matthew uh, the obvious thing is who wrote Matthew? Well, we would say Matthew wrote Matthew. Um, how do we know that? Well, there's this old, old book called the Expositions of the Lord's Logia, which was written by Papias of Heriopolis back in 90 AD. Uh, and he got his information from John the Elder. Who was John the Elder? Well, that was one of the names of the Apostle John. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. He lived longer than any of the other apostles. And he was the one who identified that Matthew had written the, the Gospel of Matthew. He's not the only source, but it had been established for a long time that this Gospel was written indeed by Matthew. Now, during the time of Matthew, it was pretty common that when you would kind of write a composition or maybe a biography of somebody, you wouldn't necessarily put the date down when you would write. And so there's all these different queries as to, okay, so when was this written? When did he write this? Some of the scholars have said that uh, it was written in 37 AD. That's kind of the earliest that anybody says that this uh, book is written. There's those who say that it was written after 70 AD. Uh, but a lot of individuals, when they look at that and look at the evidence that people supposedly cite as to Matthew being written after 70 AD, they highly doubt it. And that's because there was a major event in the life of Israel, and that was 69 AD when Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed. Um, Christ predicted that, I mean, it was just throttled. Uh, there were over a million Jews that were slaughtered by the Roman sword, 
and the temple was just basically decimated, taken apart, uh, literally stone by stone. It just kind of the stones were drug all over the city uh, as it was just leveled. And that's not mentioned or even hinted at. And so many believe that that's because it's such a momentous event that it'd be difficult for Matthew to write his gospel after that event had happened and make no reference to it at all. So quite a few settle for a time around 50 A.D. Now when it comes to those who do say that it was maybe later, written in, in 80 or 85 A.D., they talk about, uh, and they call this the parting of the ways. In fact, there's a short article in your bulletin about that, the parting of the ways. And what that's referring to is, in the beginning, when, as Christianity began, it was viewed by many as being just a, another sect within Judaism. In fact, a lot of the early church, you would have uh, believing Jews who would meet um, on um, Friday night when they would have, you know, go to the synagogue and they would uh, worship as Jews. And then those who were believers in the Messiah, they would gather together again on Saturday night and they would worship. That would be the first day of the week for them and they would worship Christ and that was kind of their habit. Uh, but, you know, some divisions would continue to grow because of their belief that Jesus was the Messiah and it began to cause some problems early on. And so there was kind of a, a parting of the ways. And it, it actually went through several different stages. And so there are those who will make reference, and I'll just read to you from Matthew 4, 23. And it says, And he went throughout all of Galilee, speaking of Jesus, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so there are those who will point to that phrasing, that Jesus went to their synagogues. And some say, see, it's already begun. There's already this separating that's, that's taking place, and so that's how Matthew refers to the synagogue. Not our synagogue, not the synagogue, but their synagogues. Well, perhaps. Um, but again, uh, a lot of individuals say that because of how Matthew 24 reads, that, uh, again, the date before 69 AD is preferred, and that's kind of where it's been settled uh, for a long time. Now, you would think that it would go without saying, but when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is clearly the subject of Matthew. I mean, that, would be, that should be obvious to all of us. We should be asking ourselves when you read through Matthew, what does this reveal about Jesus? Now, I know that sounds maybe obvious and easy, but in the day we live in, and this is not a brand new thing, but there are many who use the Gospels, they use a lot of the Bible this way, but they use the Gospels to primarily teach life lessons, to walk your own path, don't hesitate when you should act, experience what you've learned, good things don't come easy, make every moment count, live and let live, and all those types of things. Don't use the Gospels for that. You're missing the entire point. That's not what it's about and what it's for. You may learn some of those things along the way, but that is not what it's about. It's not a book that gives us life lessons. It is focused on Jesus. It's not primarily on Jesus' disciples, uh, or by extension, his modern disciples, meaning us. Matthew insistently casts the spotlight on Jesus. So when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, if we see ourselves, rather than Jesus, as the primary character in the Gospel story, then we are using the Gospel in a manner that's foreign to the author's intent. And there are those who do that. When they read through the gospel or when they read through the Bible, uh, they look to see themselves in the Bible. We are not the main character. We are the recipients of God's grace, absolutely. But we are not the main character. Now, a secondary purpose of Matthew 
And a lot of the ancient biographies would do this. Because the subject is Jesus here, Jesus is presented as a model whose character and conduct is worthy to be emulated, that his teaching should be adopted and obeyed. So while the gospel is primarily a testament about Jesus, it's also a manual of discipleship. It holds Jesus up, and he is the one that we should emulate. He is the one that we should be like. In fact, when you get to the conclusion of Matthew's gospel, it does stress the responsibility of teaching new disciples to what? To obey all the commands of Jesus. It's not just to teach the commands of Jesus. It says teaching them to obey the commands of Jesus. Matthew wants his readers to not only know and worship Jesus, but also to obey Jesus and to follow his example. And, that, and that's why he has written this gospel. Now, when we, when, we, when we go through Matthew, and even though we use the word story a lot, there's the story of Jesus, here's the, here's the story of Jesus doing this, and the story of Jesus doing that. It's not wrong to use the word story, but we want to make sure we always remember that Matthew writes and implies that the gospel is to be read as a historically reliable document or account. This is real history. This is not some nice myths or it's just stories that we just kind of tell each other so we can learn certain things. We are, we are studying history. Right? This is the history of Jesus Christ, uh, who he is and what he said and what he sought to accomplish. And so we are learning these things as well as the things that it's teaching us uh, about life along the way. So I want to make sure we remember that uh, because we can kind of at times unintentionally take it for granted. Everybody's thinking that. I think I've shared with you before that uh, there's been a lot of different studies done through the years trying to answer certain questions that have perplexed the modern church for a long time. And one of those is why does it seem that so many young people when they, when they leave, people who are raised in church, those who, who leave um, home to go to college, seem to walk away from the faith in their first year. And there's all these theories about, you know, all of the atheistic doctrines that are taught in colleges, which it, it, it does happen, and that those who are Christians are oftentimes mocked, but that does happen, and that there are those individuals who maybe were raised in a Christian home where the church didn't really come to Christ, and that does happen. Uh, but there was a book that I read that I thought was very interesting, and he said that, there's no one cause, but one of the major causes, he thinks, is just our whole approach to the Bible. And it's not, we did not do this intentionally. But when we read through the Bible, we read the story of Adam and Eve. We read the story about Noah's Ark. And we go through all these stories. Again, it's almost as if the assumption is a story is like the storybook hour you can have when you go to the local library. And what ends up happening is, is we don't recognize or remind ourselves that this is history, that this is uh, what um, has really taken place um, in, uh, in history and that what we're looking at is very real. And so we want to make sure that we remember that and maybe even emphasize that. So I would even say, you know, when you read through those stories or read through the Gospels to your kids or your grandkids, it is absolutely appropriate that at times you do stop and remind them that what we're reading really did happen and that it's true. And that it's not just some story, uh, because that does, that can lead to individuals then not maybe having the kind of respect that they should have for the Bible, uh, and it won't have the impact. So one of the things I want to dwell on today is some of the peculiar, I guess to in a sense, maybe peculiar things that we find in the Bible. One of them is how Jesus refers to himself. 
And one of the main ways, and what many will say is his favorite way of referring to himself, is with the title, Son of Man. It's his favorite title. Son of Man, uh, uh, Jesus uses that phrase 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And so that title, which is what that is, it expresses Jesus' deity, his humanity, and his messianic authority. All of that is expressed in that title. Now, some, a regular Gentile, a regular American, just reading that, is not going to know that. Uh, and so we want to we kind of look a little bit as to where that comes from. Because as Jesus comes to Israel and he comes to this very religious group where everything that they do is um, around, centered around the synagogue, centered around the temple, and all the religious, everything they do is religious. Everything they do, the way they eat, what they eat, the way they wash their dishes, what they wear, what they do in the morning, what they do in the week, everything is, is um, uh, designed and uh, informed by the Old Testament and what their Jewish leaders say. So if you would turn to the, the book of Daniel, chapter 7. The book of Daniel, chapter 7. This is where this title is drawn from. And again, most of those individuals that Jesus was talking to would know this. When they would go to school, the way the school would be set up in the Jewish society during the time of Jesus is your child would go to school maybe somewhere around the age of three or four, you know, maybe five, somewhere around there. And they would go to school on a regular basis all the way until they were, you know, somewhere between 11 and 12. And they would study only one thing, the Old Testament. And the reason why it was set up that way was the idea behind that, or the philosophy behind that was whatever your child is going to grow up to be, whether they're going to be a fisherman, a carpenter, whatever it's going to be, the way they're going to be successful in life is they're going to be, they need to be a person of character. Amen. They need to be a person who has morals and ethics, that they understand who they are and how they should live and how they should conduct themselves. But what's the basis for that? That would be the Bible. It would be the Old Testament. And so that's what they would learn day in and day out, memorizing a large amounts of it. In fact, many of them would have had a good portion of the Old Testament pretty well memorized. They would, they would be able to tell you immediately where certain things are and where that comes from. So when Jesus then refers to himself as the Son of Man, they're all thinking Daniel. All of them. They, that's where there's, they're, they're immediately tuned into that because they understand that. Daniel chapter 7, beginning of verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the phrase, like the Son of Man, shows that the figure that Daniel is talking about has a human appearance. Now, this is not saying or not implying that the figure is only human. Some would even say that Daniel is emphasizing the humanity of this person at the beginning of the vision, because when you get into all the other descriptions, it all indicates that he's vastly more than just a human being. So he's establishing this from the very beginning. So the Son of Man here is described as coming with the clouds of heaven. Since a cloud depicts the divine glory in the book of Moses. And again, this would be the way the Jews would think. And again, this is the way that we should think. You know, when, when you read the Bible, 
and you come across maybe words that, that may be symbolic or something, or they represent something, or we see maybe it, it, it's a it figure or something. It's like a figure of speech. You don't want to go outside the Bible to figure out what that means. You stay within the Bible. That's why the Bible is 66 books. And, all, and it's a perfect unity in all those books. But that's where we go to figure out what the Bible is saying because it is really one author. That would be God. And so we need to understand how are these things used in the Bible, not just whatever your imagination. Um, that's, you know, I know it's, it sounds kind of silly now and it can be kind of funny, but sometimes when individuals approach prophecy, they do that. You know, they come across a verse in the Bible and it, it'll be using the word eagle symbolically and they go, it's America. What? That's America. How do you know that? What's well, an eagle? And an eagle represents America. Well, yeah, but an eagle represents other countries too. How can it's not them? Oh, no, it's not them. It's America. Well, I mean, how do you come to that conclusion? How do you know that? Well, you don't. All right? And just so you know, it's not America. But anyway, uh, so you want to stay within the Bible uh, to try to figure these things out. And that requires sometimes a lot of studying. And a lot of reading and being coming very familiar with the Bible so that you can kind of grasp these things. And so, again, the people who Jesus is speaking to, they would know all of these things. So you have, remember in the book of Exodus, in chapter 13, you have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that the Jews would follow. That was, that, that was a, a manifestation of the presence of God. And so that's, that's, that's what they're focused in on. Then in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 10, it says, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel... They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. All right, so that's significant, that you have cloud always being associated with these things in this way. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And then also in Exodus 34, beginning of verse 4, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then also in the book of Ezekiel, the presence of the cloud is associated with a theophany. Now, what's a theophany? A theophany is just a kind of fancy word uh, that we use to uh, describe what's called a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. That's Jesus, by the way. All right, so pre-incarnate means before he was born of Mary, before he came in the flesh, there, is, there are several appearances of the second person of the Trinity. And so in your Bible, sometimes in the Old Testament, when you read um, the angel of the Lord, that is normally, almost always, that phrasing, angel of the Lord, is a title that's used for the second person of the Trinity, and he's appearing to an individual and speaking to him or whatever uh, the deal happens to be. And so that's a theophany. And so in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, he says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And then jumping to verse 27, And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. 
And like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. So they would have associated this cloud and all these things with, with the glory of the Lord. And so this individual that we're speaking of, the Son of Man, we know that this individual is not just some regular human being. This is someone unique. This is someone different. This is something, someone that we need to be paying attention to. And then when you go on in Matthew, I mean not Matthew, in Daniel 7, it then says that all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. So again, we see, okay, this guy, this guy's pretty important. Now, what is interesting, along with that phrasing, that they serve him, is there's this Aramaic verb that is translated serve here in Daniel. And that word is used exclusively by Daniel and refers to the worship of God or gods. All right, so it's a word that's used for worship. So you could say that all peoples and nations and languages worship him. That would be appropriate uh, way to say that. When they would worship, uh, one of the things you would say when you were worshiping God is you were serving God. You were, you were doing that in, in, a, in a proper way. So the choice of that word then suggests a scene in which human beings of every ethnicity and culture worship the Son of Man as God. Because God is the only one you're to worship. Right? There's, there's, you don't worship anybody else. Angels forbid you to worship angels. Um, Paul, uh, um, Peter, at uh, one time, when he, when he healed a man, the man was bowing down to, to worship him. He said, no, 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 get up. You don't worship us. The only, there's only one that you worship. And so these people gather together and they worship the Son of Man. So Daniel's vision then especially emphasizes the authority of the Son of Man because also it says he was what? Given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So, back then to Matthew, when Jesus uses this phrase refers to himself as a son of man to identify himself, all of his hearers, all those who were Jewish, which is predominantly, that's who they were, they would understand that title against this very rich background of the book of Daniel and early Jewish literature. So they knew what that meant. They knew what he was saying. Now that's, that's important for several different reasons, but one of them is sometimes people will say, you know, well, you know, I just... If Jesus had just made it more plain, you know, because we keep thinking like Americans, he should have just said, I am the Messiah. Uh, that somehow that would have been, this was, he was already making it as clear as he could. They understood exactly what was going on here. So he did make it clear. Some people think, well, if he made it more clear, then they wouldn't have accepted him. Well, that's not true. All right. And again, they, they knew. Some people will even say this. Well, if, there was, if they had just had a little more evidence, I'm, I, they would have believed they had all the evidence they needed, and they chose to ignore the evidence. What it, it kind of refers, it kind of reminds us, I guess, of human nature, and that's this. We have to, and we have to understand. That I believe it's what the Bible teaches. Before you and I became Christians, it was never that we could not believe in Jesus; we would not. It's always that same. The responsibility is always on us when it comes to non-believers. Even though a non-believer may say, well, if I could just see this, if I could just see that, then I would believe. It's not true. It's not true. In fact, remember there's a story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, and they die, and the rich man is suffering, and, he, and he's talking to Abraham, he says, send Lazarus back from the grave so that my brothers won't end up here. What does Abraham say? Nah, they got Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe them, 
they will not believe someone who even returns from the dead. And you know that's true because you know Jesus has returned from the dead. How many people believe in him? Not a whole lot. Right? Not comparatively speaking, it's not a lot. Human nature is man, Romans 1, rebels against God. They rebel against the knowledge of God. We are, we are renouncing. We have no excuse. And so it's not that we can't believe, it's that we won't believe. And that's why we pray the way we do. That God will change their heart. That God will soften the heart. That God will open their mind. That God will take the blinders off their eyes so they will see the gospel and see their need of Jesus Christ. And so there's that consistency that's, uh, uh, and this uh, the way to identify human behavior that goes on throughout the word of God that is consistent. And so these individuals know exactly what Jesus means when he calls himself the Son of Man. In fact, I believe, and many scholars believe this, that the reason why he probably preferred Son of Man is because the title Messiah, which is correct, Messiah means anointed one. And so again, if you've not heard this, when we refer to Jesus Christ, Christ, as you know, is not his last name. Christ means anointed one. It's just the Greek version of the Hebrew version, which is Messiah. It's, it's, Christ or Messiah is the same thing. So the reason why in Matthew he's not running around saying he's the Messiah or using that title a great deal is because Christ clearly understood what they were thinking about when it came to the Messiah. The Old Testament speaks a lot about the coming of the Messiah, and there's, there was some confusion, misunderstandings, because there appears to be two different messiahs. In fact, some believe there be two. There's one that comes as a conquering king, and then there's the suffering servant. Well, guess who the Jews are looking forward to? The, the conquering king. They were under Roman rule. They were tired of Roman rule. They want to be released from Roman rule, and we're looking for the messiah to come and basically put the Romans in their place. And, and so and to help these individuals to not go in the wrong direction, he referred to himself primarily as the Son of Man. He's not hiding the fact that he's Messiah. And it's not that he never uses that term. He does. But this is what he emphasizes about himself. So again, we want to make sure that, that uh, we, we grasp this idea that, you know, because there are those who are looking for this political leader to come, then he refers to himself this way. So again, by using the title Son of Man, Jesus communicated that he was both human and divine, that he was ruler over all. He was the, here's the fancy term, eschatological judge, meaning in the future he's going to judge. So it's, referred to, it's referring to a future event. He is going to judge. And he is one worthy of worship by all peoples of the earth. So that is part and parcel. That, that's what Matthew is seeking to communicate to us. We are going to go through a few more of the titles that are used to refer to Jesus to kind of give us that background so that when we dive into the stories of Jesus and the things that he said, it will give to us a more complete understanding of what he was communicating. We can know that. We can know what Jesus was communicating. The background information really is very important. So again, keep in mind that when we deal with the background information, or even if we deal with the Greek or the Hebrew or Aramaic, we're never using those things as tools to change what the Bible is saying. We're using those things to enhance what's being said. We're not using those things to, to alter our interpretation. We can understand what's being said. But now we have a, more, a, a fuller understanding of what's being communicated. And, and I think what it begins to help us to realize is that we are much more responsible for the decisions that we make concerning Christ than maybe we ever imagined. We cannot claim ignorance. 
So that is why then is when we gather together, we worship Christ. We are following through on what it says here in the book of Daniel. We are worshiping the individual who is human and divine. He's not a mere human. He's not superhuman. He is God who's taken on flesh. And we worship Jesus Christ. He is divine. He is ruler over all. He is rightly called a king. He is not just ruler of our life. He is ruler over all things. And so, and that is who we worship. He is the future judge. Yes, there is judgments now, but there's a time coming when there is a final judgment. And he is the one who will render judgment. This is the one that is our Savior. This is the one that is our Lord. And he is worthy. He has proven himself worthy, not only by the life that he lived, but by his willingness to lay his life down, to be our substitute, to sacrifice himself, taking on our punishment, the punishments due us for our sin. He willingly endured that for us. This is the story of that individual. Matthew is going to communicate to us and all those who will read who this man is, what he is like, and what he has said. So then when we gather together to worship, hopefully one of the things that will take place is our, is our understanding and appreciation for Jesus continues to increase, then our worship of Jesus will be maybe even more heartfelt, coming from a deeper place inside of us with a greater sense of gratitude and awe for this individual who loves us. Because it really is astounding that this individual, this perfect God-man, all of this that we read came here so that you and I could be reconciled to God. Who are you? Who am I? What great consequence do I have when it comes to the history of the world? Really not much. And neither do you. And yet he found us worthy as those who were created in the image of God to come and to give himself for us. It is astounding in every way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow before you, we thank you so much, Father, for the Son of Man who came to give himself for us. Father, we are amazed at your love for us. We appreciate deeply your love for us. Now, Father, not only that because we are insignificant in one sense compared to the rest of humanity, but Lord, that we are unworthy because of our sin, because of our rebellion against you. And yet, Lord, in spite of all of that, in, in one sense we can say you went through all the trouble so that at the perfect time, in the appointed way, you would send this man to earth to live for us and to die for us. We thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would cause us to think often about the gospel of Matthew and the weeks and months ahead. And that, Father, our understanding of you will, will grow, our awe of you will deepen, and the gratefulness, Father, will continue to blossom as we come to a, a better understanding of Jesus Christ. May we love you, Father, with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.